Well, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair, Faithful Answers to Your New Testament Questions. I am Jennifer Roach. This is week three. I'm super excited. Our content this week is just fantastic. Um, Here's the question that might come up with your evangelical friends or family um, around this week's verses. Why did Joseph Smith change the meaning of some verses in the Bible? It's a fair question, right? Like your friends might be curious about that. And we have a great verse this week that just illustrates all of the principles here. So here we go. Um, This week, we come to this really, really important verse in scripture. It's John 1, 1. Traditionally, that verse has been translated, in the beginning was the word. And you will find it that way in almost every single English translation that exists. There's a couple exceptions, but not many. It, it, it's actually one of the few verses that gets translated pretty much the same, almost straight across the board. Um, it is also, it's often the first verse that beginning Greek students learn. NRK and halogos is what it sounds like in Greek. And anyone who has ever taken New Testament Greek, that is probably where you started. And maybe the only Greek verse you still have memorized. Because um, lo- lots and lots of students start there. It's sort of... Um, Jack went up the hill for, for Greek. Um, and, and it's a fantastic verse to start with because straight off we are introduced to some of the complexities around translation issues. So the text literally says in the beginning was the logos. We look at that verse now with the benefit of of centuries of translation work on our side. And we know that logos means Jesus, at least in some sense. And and in English, we hear it in the beginning was the word. And our modern brains can translate that into in the beginning was Jesus. Um, Translators, theologians, scholars that have been settled on this for a very long time. So it's a fair question to ask, Why did Joseph Smith step out of the established tradition on this verse? Now, your your evangelical friends or family, they might not be able to point out the specifics. They might not say, hey, I know in John 1, 1, Joseph Smith translated it differently. They, They might not get to that level of detail, but they have some idea that he has made some translation changes They're probably kind of suspicious about it, and they want to know what's up. If you are in conversation with them about the New Testament, like this is just going to come up. So let's look at what Joseph did with his translation of that verse. This is the Joseph Smith translations, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the son was of God. So pretty different than in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He He's adding in a bunch of stuff there. So we're going to take a, a good hard look at this. There's a lot going on. We're going to break it down to some pieces. First, I want to talk about what your evangelical friends or family, what they think when they hear those differences in the translation why they hear it that way. And then we're going to talk about what Joseph is actually doing in his translation and how it might open up some meaning that could be 
important even to your angel evangelical friends they they might actually find his meaning in that kind of interesting so first what do evangelicals hear when they hear that translation well there are many verses in the bible that have translation variations and most evangelicals are completely comfortable with this. It is a non-issue for them. They understand that many different translations of the Bible are trying to do different things. Um, for example, they know that a translation like the message, which isn't really a translation, it's a paraphrase, but it's a popular one. They know that that is trying to do something radically different than a translation like the English Standard Version, the ESV, which is another wildly popular right now translation. The message is trying to put the Bible into some fresh contemporary language that a modern reader can hear and understand in their own context in a new way that they might be able to kind of hear it with fresh ears. You know how it is. You've heard a verse your entire life. And eventually that verse just loses some meaning. What the message translation is trying to do is, is get you to look afresh at the meaning basically. Meanwhile, a translation like the ESV, the English standard version, they're trying to give you as close to a word for word translation as possible even when that means sacrificing the sound of a passage or a sentence that it's going to sound sometimes kind of awkward and weird to our English speaking ears. So when evangelicals hear a different translation, they're not necessarily reacting to the fact of why does this translation say one thing and this translation say another thing? Mostly they're used to that and they don't care about that. The thing that bothers them when they hear something like Joseph's translation is that they doubt Joseph Smith's abilities as a translator, and they use his wrong, I'm saying wrong in quotes, translation of John 1.1 1, 1 as proof that he couldn't possibly even translate the Bible correctly. What in the world chance did he have of translating the golden plates correctly? That's pr pretty much how that logic would go. So one of the things your evangelical friend might be wondering about is how can you trust Joseph as translator? How can you trust the Book of Mormon, translator from a language no one knows, especially when we have no access to the golden plates to check his work? They're not available to us to put side by side, say, wh what does the plate say? What did Joseph say it said? And have some expert or studied person say, well, he got it right here and he, he got it wrong there. It's impossible to do that. The interesting assumption behind that question is as if we had originals of the Bible to check it against. Many people, evangelicals and all kinds of other people, have seen maybe pictures of old manuscripts, or or maybe they've even seen one in person. If you go to the um, British Library in London, you can see the Codex Sciaticus. It's the oldest complete manuscript that we have. It's on public display. Lots of I've gone to see it. Lots and lots of people have gone to see it. Because these manuscripts are really old, many people assume that somewhere one of them are the actual documents the writers literally wrote on 
that that somewhere we have a parchment in the handwriting of Paul that we could take a translation of one of Paul's letters, check it against that, and see whether the translation is right or wrong. The reality is we don't, we don't have anything close to that. We have um, Codex Sciaticus. We say it's our oldest complete Bible. It dates back to the fourth century. The further back that you go, the, the smaller and smaller the fragment pieces get, all the way down to fragments that are maybe the size of a business card. And we call those sometimes manuscripts, but it's not. It's not like this was written in the hand of Paul, even those credit card or, or business card size ones. There is a science called textual criticism, which identifies, it's not um, the criticism of text. It identifies and tracks the variations in a text. So this process is really good at knowing where changes happened as one manuscript was copied to the next. They can see where a word got changed. They can tell what manuscripts got copied from that wrong manuscript as it goes down the line. However, that is not a completely 100% accurate science. Textual criticism has gotten it wrong in the past, sometimes greatly. Um, and so we're still in a situation with the Bible where the translation cannot be checked just like the translation of the Book of Mormon cannot be checked. They're in pretty similar boats. Still, evangelicals feel, they feel really nervous about a novel translation, especially like one we see in John 1.1. 1, 1. A, a lot of what Joseph is doing in his translation of the Bible is, I mean, pretty similar to what you see in other Bibles doing. Not true here. He's doing something pretty radically different. Because no other translations are in agreement with what he's doing, evangelicals hear that as a subtle way to kind of smuggle in some incorrect meaning into the scriptures. So the question for us to ponder today, is that what's happening here? Or, or is it something else? And I mean, you already guessed it's something else. So, so how does Joseph Smith see John 1-1? Um, if you remember um, what Joseph is doing in the very first part of the verse, instead of in the beginning was the word, or in Greek, NRK and halogos, we get in the beginning was the gospel preached through the sun. So Joseph is swapping out the word for the gospel preached through the sun. And the question becomes, what is he doing here and why? And so we have to talk about that word in Greek, logos. Now, most Latter-day Saints are not particularly interested in philosophy and for understandable reasons. But in order to get to some important context here, we kind of got a glance in the direction of philosophy a little bit to understand what does this word logos even mean? In English, we translate it as the word. That is not a literal translation. Sometimes we say logos means Jesus. Also not a literal translation. It, it It's pointing to Jesus. That's not an incorrect thing to say, but that's not the literal translation of what that word means. So logos it means to Greek philosophers something close to 
the metaphysics that are universal law. If you're not a philosophy-minded person, that doesn't mean anything to you. So we'll go a couple layers deeper. One Greek philosopher said, the world is animated and kept in order by fire. And that fire is the logos. So he's saying everything that happens in the world, all of the planet's functions, all of the functions of things that happen on the planet, this Greek philosopher, he sees them as being animated by fire. And he says the fire is the logos. It's the thing that's driving all of the forces. Interesting, right? How do we get the word out of that? Let me give you another one. Um, Plato and Aristotle both understood logos as something like the very principles of logic. The Stoic philosopher said logos was the vitalizing force in the universe, the thing that made all the other things happen. Even, even jumping forward many centuries, well past Greek philosophy, Philosophers are still having a conversation about what the Logos is. Hegel says it's the absolute concept of the universe. So you can start to see the translation work here is, is not an easy one for one. This is what this means. So we have the literal Greek text saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. That's the literal Greek on the page if we translate it into English, but keep Logos. Our English translations almost universally translate Logos as word. And what they're trying to do there is say something like, in the beginning, the logic that makes all logic make sense was with God. Or, or maybe... In the beginning, the story that ties all the stories together was with God. Or, or even in the beginning, the thing that makes everything else work was with God. But as we humans like to do, we simplify things and we no longer hear in the beginning was the word and understand it to mean all of these things. We just hear the word. We plug in Jesus it, it isn't necessarily untrue. It just misses a lot of the nuance that's there, a lot of the meaning that's there. So when Joseph translates, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the sun, he's not mistranslating. He's bringing us a layer of meaning that has largely been lost to the modern reader, but would have been obvious to the Greek reader. I read this is Joseph saying, in the beginning, God's plan to animate the whole world was the gospel. And it was Jesus who was going to carry the gospel out. Instead of the, instead of the Greek philosophers, the universe is animated through fire. We get the world is animated through the gospel plan. That's what Joseph is saying in his translation. And now all of a sudden we have this incredible depth of meaning. And the question of, well, why did Joseph change the Bible when no one else translated it that way? It has a far clearer answer. He saw something there that most translators are not bringing forward. So we really need to address this question of what is it like to talk about evangelicals about translation issues? Latter-day Saints, it's right in our articles of faith. We believe the Bible insofar as it is translated correctly. 
you might be tempted to say, well, John 1, 1 clearly is a spot that the Bible has not been translated correctly. Joseph got it right. Everybody else gets it wrong. And this is, this is pretty tricky ground to stand on. And I want to explain why. And I also want to explain why jumping to that passage must be translated incorrectly. It, it's tricky, tricky ground. Um, most of the time we go there really prematurely way, 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 way before we've done the actual study to understand what is the translation actually saying. So technically, in the beginning was the word is a correct translation of the literal Greek sentence that is on the page. The translation is fine. What we see happening in Joseph's translation is that he's opening up a new layer of meaning in an artistic way that is not identical to a literal translation. Your evangelical friends might object to this by saying he's taking too many liberties. The translation should be as close to a word-for-word -word translation as possible. But it, they don't really have a leg to stand on there because at the same time, they love the message translation. The, the message renders John 1, 1 like this. The word was first. The word present to God, God present to the word. The word was God. That is not the literal translation of NRK and Halogos. That is using artistic wording to bring out a layer of nuanced meaning. It's actually quite lovely, but it's not literal. An interesting thing for, for evangelicals to have to grapple with is why is it okay for a translation like the message to bring out a layer of meaning, but it's not okay for Joseph Smith to do it? This also leads us to a, maybe a needed conversation about translations. So our leaders have said that we are to use the King James, King James Version in our public worship, and for some very good reasons. I am 100% on board with that. I believe you are too. Your evangelical friends or family might think you're crazy for that. King James is hard to understand. It's hard to follow. Sometimes it's hard to even track the story of what's happening. Interestingly enough, this is where we Latter-day Saints are kind of on the other side and are skeptical of some other translations. Um, today we see like John 1, 1 gets translated roughly the same across the board in all the Bible translations, except a couple that's not true for many verses. And there can be wildly different translations. Latter-day Saints can have the same worry about non King James translations that our evangelical friends have about the Joseph Smith translation. We worry that it's going to bring in a corrupted message or that it's been mistranslated. Let me give you a brief rundown of, of translations that might be helpful to you um, if you want to consider adding another translation alongside of, not in replacement of, your King James translation. So as we've already alluded to today, there's a few different philosophies behind Bible translations, as well as a few different categories of source material. Let's talk about source material first. Remember, we don't have any originals of the Bible. 
we have manuscripts and fragments. All a manuscript is, is a hand copied version of something. It doesn't mean it's the orig original. Between the time of Christ and the invention of the printing press, we have about 6,000 manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament. M most of them, honestly, are fragments. Some fragments are very small, business card size. Others, we call them fragments. They're almost a complete book, but not quite. And, and then many versions of, of whole complete New Testaments, sometimes books are swapped in and out the, over the history of things, but we would kind of consider them complete for their era. The thing to know is that of those 6,000 manuscripts, no two are identical. There are changes in every single one um, for, for understandable reasons that not going to go into here. Bible translators have to make some choices about which manuscripts and fragments they are going to use as their source material to translate from. They've got 6,000 choices. In general, the earlier the manuscript, the better. It's had less time to degrade. It's had less time to be copied wrong. We can trace it a little bit better. But even still, even if we narrow it down to saying we want manuscripts and fragments from the third through the seventh century, you still got to make some choices about which ones you're going to use. Bible translators make those choices they, they develop a, a source text that they are going to translate from, and they don't worry too much about the other manuscripts and the other fragments where there are variations. You can read in the, the perfect Bible for each manuscript of, of their source translation. You can read a perfect translation, right, of the source material and still know that different source material says some slightly different things. So all of this is interesting to know. It won't help you. If you're an academic, it's kind of fun to talk about. It's not going to help you make, choose a Bible. In the preface of every modern translation, they do talk about what is their source material? What have they picked? It, it's largely going to be meaningless to you. What is helpful is the translator's philosophy. This is also something that they will tell you in the preface of the Bible, what, what their overall translation philosophy was. That's what the, the preface is for. And there's basically three categories of, of translation philosophies. One is word for word. The second is thought for thought. And the third is a paraphrase. So first, you should know the word for word translations are not word for word translations. <laughs> no such thing is possible. The, not only are there words that don't translate one language to another, the, the structure doesn't even translate. The Hebrew of the Old Testament lacks a grammatical structure that is recognizable to English speakers. In, in English, and as with any other modern language, we can break a sentence down into its parts. We can see, is it a verb? Is it a noun? Is it an adverb? What is it doing? How is it functioning in that sentence? We can diagram it out. The, the Hebrew doesn't do that. The structure is just not there. So the translators have to introduce that structure into the English so that it's readable. If they didn't, it would be thoroughly unreadable to you. It, 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 it's true about Greek as well to a, to a much, much lesser degree. Greek has some recognizable structure. It's not nearly as developed 
as a modern language as English is, it, it's a far more developed language than Hebrew. So what the word-for-word -word translators are doing is they're trying to get as close to pos as possible to a word-for-word -word translation, knowing they won't really get there. And they are willing to sacrifice readability to do so, meaning there are going to be times where the text just sounds clunky, where it sounds hard. Nobody would say a sentence that way. It's getting translated that way because they're trying to get as close to word for word as they can. Your translations in this category, the, the most popular ones are the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the Revised Standard Version. Um, of those three, the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is by far the most popular. It's the newest. It probably has the best scholarship. People would fight me on that. Um, it, it definitely is the most read one in the word-for-word -word category. In contrast are, are the thought-for-thought -thought translators. And what they're trying to do is take their source material and stay true to what meaning the original writer was trying to say and bring that into English in a way that's going to get the meaning across. They're far less concerned with staying as close as possible to a word-for-word -word translation. They're much more concerned with staying as close as possible to a meaning-for-meaning -meaning translation. These translations are easier to read. They sound better to our ears. They're generally more understandable. The trade-off, though, they, is they do sacrifice staying close to the source material. Um, your, your most popular translations in this category are the NIV, the New International Version, um, and the New American Bible. New International Version, um, I think first came out in 1979, 1976, something like that. By far, far and away the most popular version in this category. If you're thinking about, I would like to add a, a translation along with my King James reading, English Standard Version, if you want to go thought for or word for word, New International Version, if you want to go thought for thought, if you want to do it inexpensively, there are a myriad of websites online that will show you any translation you want to see. If you brought those two up, the ESV and the NIV and the and the King James, you would get a, a very lovely comparison to kind of the scope of what's being done in translation. There, there's a third category. They're not actually real translations. They're, they're paraphrases. We say they're not real translations because their source material is not Greek or Hebrew. It's not, it's not anything foreign. They, they're, they're paraphrasing from a previously translated English version into something that is modern English that sounds fresh to ear, to your ears. Um, Paraphrases aren't a great choice for serious study, but they're a fantastic choice for devotional reading. Um, actually, I love reading from the message. I wouldn't study out of it, um, but it does let you hear the text in a new way. The The other popular uh, or paraphrase in that category is the Living Bible. The message is newer. The message is is very well loved. The, the Living Bible, I think, came out in the 70s, maybe the 60s. Um, it was loved for a really long time. Both of those are great for devotional reading. So in conclusion, all of that to say, when the issue of translation comes up with your evangelical friends and family, it can feel overwhelming. I get it. 
you might feel hesitant to talk about it for fear of just not knowing what you're talking about. But as you can see in John 1, 1, like Joseph Smith was bringing out some really interesting meaning in that text. That's actually meaning what, what is the logos? What, what is what is going on in this verse? It's actually meaning that your evangelical friends could probably enjoy that insight of, huh, I never even thought about it. I just thought it meant word and I thought word meant Jesus. Um, so I hope this information helps you in your conversations with people. Again, what we're doing here is not trying to give you, here's ammunition for you to fight people, but here's how to have a better conversation about the scriptures that we love and the scriptures that they love. Find some commonalities and share our distinctives with them. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll be back next week.